Hi. See you. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Hart about the legal regulation of drugs. Carl, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Carl Hart. I'm a professor at Columbia University. I'm also an author, and I'm also a parent and a husband. Cool. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. So what the heck is the legal regulation of drugs? People can understand it when they think about something like alcohol. We legally regulate alcohol, meaning that there is quality control. We make sure the alcohol that we sell does not have adulterants, things that will be harmful to people. There is a legal age limit, and you have to have a license to sell it and those sort of things. So that's what I mean when I say legal regulation of drugs. My position is that the drugs that people seek, like cocaine, cannabis, MDMA, even an opioid like heroin should be legally regulated such that the federal government ensures that there's quality control. People are not getting adulterant in their substances. And there are requirements like age requirement, maybe other requirements. We can talk about that. The unit dose is controlled to make sure we try to enhance safety. That's what I mean when I say legal regulation. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a lot about safety for people who use drugs. Yeah. It's safety for our society, but probably more importantly, it's about liberty. The first promise that we have in the country, the first promise of the Declaration of Independence, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's what it's mainly about. Okay, so how does the legal regulation of drugs ensure liberty? People have the right to put in their bodies what they choose. They have the right to pursue happiness as they see fit, so long as it does not interfere with other people's ability to do the same. That's the kind of liberty that I'm talking about. And so the issues related to the new book, it's really about that. And it's not like some superficial liberty, like these folks who say, well, I have the right not to be vaccinated. You know, it's like you certainly do. But again, you cannot impact other people's liberty. So if you're going to be interacting with them, then you have to wear masks. You may have to be vaccinated. All of these sort of things come into play. So like my liberty does not supersede yours. So the liberty that I'm talking about requires the person who is enjoying their liberty, to consider other people's liberty. It comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And so that's what the subtitle of my book is called Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. And that's a large part of the book. But uh, of course, people, some people uh, distort the message and they ignore that. It is a polemical book. I can see how some people might distort the message pretty easily. And people have a lot of strong emotional investments when it comes to this question of drugs and moral ideas that don't imagine drugs are valid methods of pursuing happiness. I don't know if there are people who believe that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like caffeine in this society. We wouldn't have alcohol. 
I don't think that's what the issue is. I think the issue is that there are people in our society who think they can tell you how to pursue your happiness, how you should exercise your liberty when you're minding your own business. I think it's more about the control as opposed to um, what mechanisms we uh, we we decide or like a drug. It's a it's just a substance. It's not a big deal. How do I use the legal regulation of drugs? We take a step back. So what we're spending, for example, to control certain drugs in our society, on paper, we say it's $40 billion a year. It's a lot more than that in actuality, but uh, on paper, it's $40 billion a year. That kind of money could be redirected into efforts to really improve the lives of people uh, like you're in California, there are places where we can have more affordable housing. We can do a number of things with that money. But more fundamental, at a more fundamental level, is this issue of just liberty. The three original promises of the country to all of us as citizens, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it would resolve some of that conflict or the hypocrisy where we, we say that we have these sort of rights, but in actuality, certainly as it relates to some drugs, you don't have those rights. And that's inconsistent. So the practice, our practice is inconsistent with our promise. And we would reconcile that. And it's important to reconcile that kind of discordance in a society, particularly when you are educating young people. That's a more fundamental and a more basic level in terms of uh, what this would accomplish, one thing that it would accomplish, and it also accomplish just a more basic and practical level. Uh, it will really increase uh, some jobs for people. Think about California and a number of other states that have legally regulated cannabis. A uh, number of jobs have been created as a result of this. So, I mean, there are all kinds of beneficial effects. We think about the so-called opioid crisis, where we have 45,000 Americans last year die with an opioid in their system. Doesn't mean they die from the opioid, but it was in their system. A lot of these folks are dying from adulterated drug, not knowing what they have. All of that, that goes away. When we prohibited alcohol in this society from 1920 to 1933, tens of thousands of Americans were killed or maimed as a result of adulterated alcohol. That went away when we legally regulated alcohol. I mean, similar sort of thing uh, could happen here. In your book, you talk about this dissonance between theory and practice in America's ideals in the context of the history of the civil rights movement and the way that punitive drug laws have resulted in racially biased policing. So maybe you might elaborate on that. Yeah, thank you for that question. If we go back to the Declaration of Independence, for example, all of these drugs were legal. People like Thomas Jefferson loved his opioid. Uh, these sort of things were available. And, and they weren't restricted, certainly legally, at least at the federal level, until the early 20th century. And they were restricted primarily because of our sort of dislike of certain racial groups. For example, where you're in the Bay Area, Chinese Americans, some of those folks had opium dens. 
and some of the people in the Bay Area, San Francisco specifically, uh, were jealous. Some of the white businessmen did not want the Chinese businessmen to do as well. So they passed ordinance, local ordinance in San Francisco, 1875, I believe, to ban the mixing of Chinese and white people. So white people couldn't frequent those establishments. So that meant that they would dwindle in terms of the money or support. And they tried to force them out of business. In many cases, they were successful. At the federal level, we banned or we restricted access to opioids and cocaine because we said that Black people, when they took cocaine, Black men specifically, they became more murderous. They became impervious to 32 caliber bullets, forcing Southern police forces to move to a 38 caliber weapon. Uh, And they also said that Black people became better marksmen. And our sort of Fear and hatred of the Chinese and of Black people facilitated the passage of the Harrison Act, which was the first federal drug law restricting drugs in this country. And then a few years later, in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed because of similar language related to Mexican-Americans at the time. Now, I should point out, now I want to make sure people understand this, and I haven't done uh, as good of a job of making sure people understand. Support for those kind of laws were not only in the white community, even in like some of these minority communities, like Black people, for example, particularly Black people who were trying to distance themselves from, say, lower class Black people, supported those kind of laws. Just like today, where you have, we call them the politics of respectability people. They want to be seen like the dominant culture. So they support these laws too. So it's not just um, one race, one group. Typically, you get buy-in from the group that's being oppressed as well. And that certainly was the case then and now. Okay, so that's how we got those laws into effect. I know that you're a scientist and I'm kind of asking you to be a historian, but I wonder if you might say sort of what happens after those laws go into effect Oh, and sort of how we get to the present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those laws go into effect. So what that means is that you build up mechanisms, apparatus in order to uh, enforce those laws, meaning that you have federal agents, for example, who are narcotics agents, narcs. They are hired to enforce those laws. So now you have a new federal agency that needs to be funded. So it increases the budget of those agencies. And the people who you go after are the despised people in the society. So that's certainly what happened. And also, please recognize at the same time that we're passing these laws, uh, like the 1914 Harrison Act, the first federal law, then in 1919, we pass prohibition. We also ban alcohol. And now you have these narcs enforcing all of these laws. Then you overturned alcohol prohibition in 1933. Now you have to have another target kind of, and that's where in 1937 we get marijuana, cannabis. So the apparatus needs energy, food to feed itself to continue. And so you need other uh, despised people. And so that's what happened. And the apparatus wants to make sure that it continues uh, because even to this day, we have these federal apparatus, local apparatus who are dependent upon the enforcement of these laws. uh, That is the sort of subjugation of certain groups 
in order to continue to make sure that they are relevant, that their budgets are padded and increased. So, so then my question for you is what's going to happen with that, with the apparatus now, if we move to the legal regulation of drugs? Yeah, it's a great question. So we redirect, retrain folks to be more supportive of this goal, our idea of liberty. There's still work that we need people to do to help keep people safe. For example, uh, we have technology to, I don't know, test the substance to make sure that they don't have adulterants in it. You want to just make sure people are trained to, when you have emergencies that people may have problems related to a drug. Oh, now you have people who are trained. You need to send them out to help folks. So you can, you just shift their focus, shift their efforts, as opposed to being a police, for example, to a peacekeeper. They don't lose jobs. People are supporting the economy. People are happier, hopefully. How would the legal regulation of drugs save the world? I don't know how that would save the world because many of the superpowers in the world have these nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. And and so, uh, oh, maybe if we give those leaders some MDMA or something of that nature, maybe it would enhance their empathy, their understanding of other people. Maybe it would make them more magnanimous. So maybe it would uh, certainly contribute to decreasing some of the, this sort of adolescent, masculine uh, energy, maybe. That's great. Thank you for coming and talking with us on High Theory. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And just good luck and continue to do what you're doing. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.